small secret about me, even though I started in QA and I work at Cyprus, I actually don't like testing at all. Oh, no. Yeah, no. I mean, I do it. Why not? Hmm, why not? I don't know. Do you like testing? Wait, I was going to say, Jared, do you <laughs> like testing? I feel like testing is... Actually, there are situations where testing can be useful, but generally it's a necessary evil, not something I look forward to. I would say there's a satisfaction to like all the green dots in a test suite that feels good. But getting there, I don't enjoy the process. I like the end result. But yeah, I don't really enjoy the process all that much. So you got me. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool helps teams focus on product development and customer value, not building and maintaining internal tools. It's a low-code platform built specifically for developers. No more UI libraries, no more hacking together data sources, and no more worrying about access controls. Start shipping internal apps that move your business forward in minutes with basically zero uptime, reliability, or maintenance burden on your team. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool, Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as their platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're new to the pod, don't forget to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime party animal, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Check out our membership program at changelog.com slash plus plus. Drop the ads, get bonuses like extended episodes, and directly support the show. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for shipping JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, you know what time it is. It's party time, y'all. Hey, hey, you know what time it is. It is JS Party Time. I am your internet friend, Jared, and I'm joined by my friend, K-Ball. What's up, man? Hello, hello. Enjoying summer and glad to be here. Happy to have you as always. We have a special guest with us today. It's Jess Sachs. What's up, Jess? What's up? Glad to join the party. Happy to have you at the party. And shout out to our new friend, Hung Win for connecting us. Thanks, Hung. Pretty cool. Jess, you are a staff engineer at Cypress. You lead the development of Cy Component Test Runner. You're a Vue team member. You're a maintainer of Faker.js. You're doing all sorts of cool stuff. Where should we start with you? Let's start at Faker. Okay. Faker is a, I just got off stand-up, so it's fresh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let's start with Faker. This thing goes way back. So, I mean, the .js doesn't go back so far, but I mean, Faker is a library that was, I think, written in Perl. There's a Ruby version. There's probably a version for Python. This idea is one that pretty much every ecosystem needs. And you are one of the maintainers on the JS version, which is why we want to talk about that. But let's just talk about the idea of Faker in general, like fake data, why? Why would you want this? So fake data, why? Because we want to test our code with realistic data, because we're lazy. And because Faker is really just a giant data set with little methods to get at the data set. That's a pretty simple idea. It's great for things like performance testing, load testing, and then... I use it for my component-driven development workflow if I'm working in tools like Storybook or Histoire or Cypress component testing. So that's why I became acquainted with it, is when I was building components and I wanted them to like look realistic, I started using Faker. 
Now you didn't write Faker. You started using Faker and now you're a maintainer of Faker. There was like a big hoopla around Faker. There was a hoopla. Back in, I think, January? Yeah, January, was it 4th? Yeah, I think it was January 4th. It wasn't January 6th. That day would be cursed. But yeah, we, I had just taken a break from Cyprus and um, where I work full time. I kind of burned out for a minute and I opened up my laptop and it was like, Somebody DM'd me, he goes by Shinny, Shinigami. He DM'd me and was like, hey, did you hear about this? And uh, Morak had deleted the repository of like my favorite like library. I use Faker all the time. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do with all this free time I have? I guess I could be part of this effort to make sure this package doesn't die so my workflow can live. So I went ahead and got involved with the community maintainership that surrounded Faker. But it was, I don't know, how deep, where do we want to go with this? It ended up being on top of Hacker News, which was crazy. My involvement, let's tell the story, I guess. There's a company called Shepard, and they had the most recent fork of the repo. And they decided that they were going to become the latest because they needed to continue to use the package they had the latest snapshot that existed before Morak deleted it. And we went ahead and added developers to the project and added a roadmap and fixed a bunch of issues. And yeah, it was quite an exciting time. I was responsible for all of the public communication mm -hmm. and reaching out to Open Collective and making it was like such a sensitive topic. We were getting issues, just pounded with issues, being like, this fork is illegal. You guys should be ashamed of yourselves. This is not what open source is supposed to be. Like, I had to lock a lot of issues. But I don't know, dealing with sensitive topics is something I think I'm very good at. Hmm. It was very interesting. Uh, it was a very interesting two weeks, I would say. So, I mean, there is sort of this really interesting question of you have a, a package that has been owned by someone mm -hmm. for a long time, and they've been using it. What was the license on the original Faker? Was it? Sorry, it was MIT. It was MIT. So like there's no, they've explicitly said, take this and do what you will with it. And then they try to remove it. Like what is? I didn't call my lawyer. We didn't get that far. <laughs> but one of my best friends was an assistant attorney general. So it was always in my back pocket. Like if I ever had to do it, I would call Diane and be like, Diane, I got a problem. And she's a huge nerd. She's a huge, like, Magic the Gathering nerd, and we would have sat down and, and talked over it, mm. which was gave me comfort because, like, we were getting a lot of threats. And, you know, I reached out to Morak, and he just responded with a GIF. That's all I got. I'd never talked to him before in my life. But, yeah, I reached out to him, got a GIF back, and I was like, okay, very nice. What was behind the threats? Like, not what were the threats themselves, but why were the threats coming? I don't know. It's a very interesting philosophical question. It's like the people that were doing that were generally in the pay-your-maintainers camp. When I say pay-your-maintainers camp, they believe in open source. And here are this team of eight really accomplished open source developers. Like I'd been professionally writing open source code for an open source company for Cypress for two years at that point. And I had a Vite core team member with me and then two other team members at the time and they everybody had experience in open source and like we were somebody would say something like these inexperienced random people just come in and take over the project and I was like 
if anything, we're not inexperienced in open source. Like these, are, this is our job. Mm-hmm. The reason we're interested in this package is it's our primary. We use it day to day. I teach Faker when I give workshops. Like I teach this. I have a vested interest in making sure it goes well. So I don't know why people who care about open source were very much against it. Yeah. <laughs> like that was always confusing to me. So I'm very much I'm for open source. I'm for that continuing to exist and I have been. My career has very much been built around and on open source technology, working with open source people. And so these are very much my people. And I, I feel like I understand a lot of that dynamic. I think maybe where I would be like, okay, where could they potentially be rubbed the wrong way? And maybe it was just like, why not? An, I mean, maybe the name not changing or something. Like maybe like, well, why don't you just have a new name or something? Like because it's not exactly Merrick's, as if he came up with Faker, which is a, a very old thing. But I mean, I could see where it's like most the time, not every time, but often when a community takes over a project that's dead or abandoned, there's some sort of like community rename or something. And I could see where like maybe that would have been a move you could have done. It didn't rub me the wrong way at all, but I'm just wondering if maybe there was some sort of grudge held because it was like, it's a takeover, you know? Yeah, because it was a direct copy of the repository. And since then, we have, what, 800 pull requests merged? Like, I should pull up the metrics before I speak, but yeah, we have like 800 pull requests merged or something like that. And Shinny and the team have done a significant amount of making it their own. Previously, there was no official doc site. Like, there was no official doc site for Faker at all. There is a third-party one that somebody made on their own because we couldn't get docs done for Faker, mm. like when, when Morak was owning it. So he had a package that had no official documentation or official types. Like, it was all ES5. And so, like, we made it our own. Like, we did absolutely not just copy somebody's code. Like, it is now in TypeScript. It is now being re-architected again. So, and we've done, what, one major version release since then? I think maybe we're at two. We've done quite a bit of making it our own. We kept the name because that's the name of the concept, not the name of, and it was the JavaScript implementation of that concept. Right. So we kept the name. There were a few different rewrites that sprung up, but I feel like that's JavaScript's bad habit is to rewrite things that don't need to be rewritten. Totally. (laughs) We were just like a set of developers who wanted to continue using our favorite package that somebody had decided to delete. I feel like some of the dynamics here are, from what I understood of it, and I was outside of this just reading third-party stuff, like he did this as a protest about not getting paid. And I found a quote from him in some article, which we can link, where he said, you know, either send me a six-figure yearly contact or fork the project and have someone else work on it, which is what y'all did. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting factors here is I think some of you who are maintaining, you are paid to work on open source. So in some ways, this did the intended result of transferring this into being paid work by some of the companies that are benefiting from it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, I get paid by Cyprus to work on test and test related projects, right? So Faker is one of those things. And I have a big architectural dream of having a very nice Cyprus Faker integration and Cypress would benefit from that, and mainly because they paid me to work on Faker, right? Like, I was on PTO a little bit. I was on a mini sabbatical, but I was a Cypress employee when I did all this Faker work. So I think it had the intended effect that he asked for. It's very difficult. You guys are actually very learned on this topic, 
before coming on the podcast. Most people don't know. I was running View Boston yesterday, and I talk about Faker whenever I talk about component-driven development. Mm -hmm. And most people like were not with it. They hadn't followed it as the saga unfolded. <laughs> right. Well, we did do a show on it back in the time. I think it was called What's in Your Package.json. And we didn't specifically, we kind of avoided some of the nitty-gritty details of Merrick and, and Faker itself and used that as a launching point for a larger conversation uh, with Toby Langle, who's an open mm. source strategist. Chris was on that show for Ross and Amel. So that's a good one to go back for people who maybe missed it and wanted to hear not just the details of the drama or the saga, but also some of the struggles that we have as a community open source writ large and some of the ideas around how we can work together and work with corporates and work with the community to maybe bridge some of these gaps that are in our ecosystem, mostly around sustainability. So that's episode 210. We'll just put that in, in the show notes for the folks who want the deep dive, a, a little deeper dive. Of course, we didn't have anybody from the community maintainer team there that day, but we have you here today. So Faker is in very good hands, it sounds. I mean, core team has like nine people maintaining it. That's great. Yeah. And it's being actively maintained, documented, re-architected. And uh, it, was there any sort of mechanical change for users of Faker? Like, did you just have the NPM repo takeover? Or did you have to like say, hey, update your package.json and point to the new Faker? How about people that were using it at the time? Was there a hiccup at all? We had a major version bump where we changed how you import it. So we supported named exports all of a sudden instead of just CJS. So there was that. And then previously, the way the bundle was exported, like as was the fashion when Maroc wrote it, you would build a browser bundle that you could just, you know, import from a CDN. But that isn't how most people use it. Most people use it as like a, a require time node side package. So we changed some of those things on how you just import it to start. That was the only big, big breaking change. And then all the types are now bundled. So you got to delete a line from your package JSON, which I always find satisfying. Which everybody loves to delete, right? Yeah. I was noticing it looks like Mark's package is still on NPM somewhere. Like there's a... Yeah. And it's getting lots and lots of downloads for what looks like an empty package. Like, is there a new location that you have to point to or... Yeah, at faker-js slash faker. So we have an org now called faker.js and then there's a sub package inside that called faker. So if you go to github.com you would go to the faker-js location. And it makes sense. There's a lot of people still downloading that old one because it's the kind of library that you you set up in your development environment, right, for testing, and you use it. And you don't update. And it's not like you think about it constantly, like, ah, you know, I need to keep this thing up to date. Unless there's, like, some sort of fake data you wish you could generate mm -hmm. that you can't. And you're like, well, I wish I had this feature. Then you're like, well, no, I'll go check the updates. And then you're like, wait a second, this thing hasn't updated for nine months. And then you maybe Google it, find the new one, and et cetera. So it makes sense a lot of people are probably still on that old NPM package. Yeah, like I have a lot of old example repositories that are using the faker just as one word. Mm -hmm. So I yesterday installed the old version accidentally. Is what it is. I mean, yeah. over time, we think the downloads will drop off. The fact that we have documentation is probably a big draw for people to use it. Uh, <laughs> you would think that's a nice feature to have. Yeah. How do I use this? During the transfer, I've been kind of like searching through to make sure I get this person's name right. I would like to say that like 
Indeed is our biggest sponsor by far, and they were with us the whole time um, when we did the transfer from the Open Collective transfer. And we, you were talking about the the previous episode and how the problems that open source has as a community. Mm-hmm. And the Open Collective was probably the biggest point of tension okay. in making sure we transferred all of the like outstanding balance to Morocco. That was really hairy. Like we were a little bit afraid of getting that wrong. And I wanted to say that like indeed themselves really they were the biggest sponsor and they were like up two thumbs up. Like we're very glad that you're doing this. I was very happy for that. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version supported, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using you know old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use this system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line Sourcegraph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then, of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes.
it seems like what you're most passionate about these days is testing, specifically component testing, or I think you said pre-show, component-driven testing or component testing driven development i don't know what you said but it's something to do about being driven so drive us down the road a bit about component testing so yeah small secret about me even though i started in qa and i work at cypress i actually don't like testing at all oh no yeah no i mean i do it why not Hmm, why not i don't know do you like testing wait i was gonna say jared do you (laughs) like testing i feel like testing is Actually, there are situations where testing can be useful, but generally it's a necessary evil, not something I look forward to. I would say there's a satisfaction to like all the green dots in a test suite that feels good. But getting there, I don't enjoy the process. I like the end result, but yeah, I don't really enjoy the process all that much. So you got me. Yeah. I don't like testing, but I also am in it for the satisfaction. So there's something called component-driven development. If you go to component-driven.org, you'll see a website that defines an open standard called CSF, the component story format. And it talks about this world in which you can drive your development starting at the smallest little buttons and inputs and stuff all the way up to a page. And you build in isolation these components. And then when you, you know, stitch them all together, you wound up with the website in theory. Mm. And that was championed by mostly the storybook team, that open standard. And That is what I get excited for. And in particular, the fact that Cypress or a browser-based test runner gives you the ability to mount this component in this little sandbox and drive its development to completion, and then it's accidentally testable. That's what I like. It's like after you finish your work, or maybe you like scaffold out the the it blocks the little tests, but you don't really do anything in them. After you finish all the CSS and whatever in your sandbox, you can just add dot click dot get and build out this test almost immediately. That feels really good that I have to do so little work to get test coverage. Mm. And it's so satisfying to like see it click and tap and move. And that's that's what gets me. That's what I like about component-driven development and then component testing in the modern age. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by accidentally testable? Accidentally testable. It surprises you how little work it takes to test after you get it mounted. So I like to break down you know, component testing into three phases. It's get the thing on the page, mount it, right? That's phase one. It's like get it on the page, interact with it, click it, get it, get different elements, buttons, whatever, and then assert that it looks the way it's supposed to. Like make sure that the overlay is closed (laughs) when you hit the X button. So that's three phases. And so mounting it is the hardest part and getting it and interacting with it and then asserting on it, that's the easy stuff. But mounting it is the hardest part, making sure that it's like rendering properly with, with all the props, events, whatever you, whatever you want your components API to be. Like that's the hard part that everybody struggles with. Once it's mounted, once it's built, Everything else is like cake and it's accidental almost how easy it is to do. That makes me happy. So some of the tooling that you were working on, is it helping provide the mounting process, like getting past the hard part? Yeah, so some of the tooling I'm working on. So I built the the Cypress component test runner with the team, team of like, I don't know, five, six people. And it uses existing mounting libraries like view test utils or the same logic that testing library uses for Svelte components or React components. It's basically the same code. And then you take that, you mount the component with it. 
And then Cyprus just does its Cyprus thing, and it already has support for getting and clicking on elements. So Cyprus went the hard way, which is end-to-end -end first, and used the existing API that works for end-to-end -end tests, and said, okay, but like, what if instead of a page, you just tested a component? So that's the stuff that I worked on for the last two years, two and a half years. That's really interesting, because we do a lot of end-to-end -end testing at my work using Selenium, but we have to do that across yeah get the whole page up figure out how you're mocking all your data on the back end so that it's loaded properly and goes through that whole piece and a lot of what most of our front end testing is there because most useful front end testing is this interactive piece that's not really very unit testable in the same way yeah so what you're saying essentially is cut off just the component piece of that but still do the browser-based approach to testing that makes sense for ui so component testing is almost like unit testing for your UI then. Some people mix them up, but yeah, like some people conflate them as the same thing. But yeah, it's I view component testing where as the thing where your subject under test is a component, right? The thing you're asserting on is a component. And you can do unit testy things with that, just like you could in theory do unit testy things in an end-to-end -end test runner. Like if you put, you know, your application on window, you can suddenly call all these methods. Sure. You could, in theory, do unit testy things in that environment. But the component test runner in Cypress was built for component development. And the things that are coming down the pipeline are built for component library authors, right? So things like changing right to left or left to right. You know, I work with Wikimedia um, on occasion because they switch to view and I do component development stuff. So I get a ping every once in a while and they show me what they're doing with their component workflow. And so I was like, here's Cypress. Let me help you out. Because naturally, your intuition is to build a, a harness as a developer when you're trying to build a, a component library. Your intuition is to build a harness that allows you to play with your components in certain ways. And that's what Wikimedia did, you know, without any of my, of my opinions. They built a website that allows you to play with your components and change languages, change the flow of the page from left to right to right to left, change into dark mode, stuff like that. And that's the stuff that I hope is coming down the pipeline at Cypress over time. And these are things that Storybook already has support for via plugins. It's a shared problem, I think. So if component testing is at least conceptually akin to unit testing where you're isolating, right? You're isolating a single in this case, your unit is your component, right? And so if you're you're isolating, and then you have end-to-end -end testing, which is like, you know, fire up the whole page and drive it, everything. Is there an in-between land where you're maybe doing like a multiple component integration? Do these things, are they so isolated that you don't have to do that? Or do you still need to test the interaction between multiple components? Because I imagine they're nested, right? I don't just imagine. I know in many cases they're nested. And so like this one is affected by its parent or by its children, et cetera. Yeah, you want to exercise the component as it wishes to be used in your application. So if you are building a component that is designed to work with its parent in a very specific way, then absolutely, you should be in the test for that, for the child component, you should absolutely be using the parent component with it, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, like, let's take a data table where you have to use a particular row component with the table, right? Like... The row component barely makes sense on its own. Like, what is a row if it's expected to be used with the parent? Like, it doesn't really matter. Right. And yeah, so you're, I call this testing like a user, but when you put on this user hat, you're actually like your coworker. The coworker is the user, not the end user. And so you're setting up your integration test, 
I hate the word integration test because most things are integration tests, but you're setting up this integration test where you're trying to make sure that you're using your subject under test, the row, in a production-like way alongside its data table parent, for instance. And yeah, that means you're not isolating, but at the same time, does it even make sense to isolate? What is a row without its data table? Nothing really. Now, similar question related to this. I think oftentimes you'll have components that are responsible for loading particular types of data and then orchestrating a set of child components in some way based on that data. Mm -hmm. And I think for simple cases, right, you can isolate all of your rendering components from the data load and then you just pass in data in your story when you're doing it. But if part of what this parent is doing is orchestrating around that, how do you think about that for component testing? Yeah. So the first thing is that when I write component tests, I barely look at the source code. So I look at what the user sees, where the user, if it's a very technical, like if it's a, where the user is first the end user. So I pretend that I'm not a developer. I pretend that I'm completely non-technical. And I look like literally at the screen, at the component. And I might look at the network tab as the ins and outs of it. If we have, let's say, a product list that infinitely loads products when you scroll to the bottom, let's take that. I would use my eyes, look at the page and say, I get you know a page worth of data. And then I scroll to the bottom it should show a spinner when I get to the bottom of the page. That's a test. After, it should eventually resolve, and then it should make a network request. I don't test that it should make a network request. I test, I set up the environment such that the network request will return. Cypress has the ability to do this. So does Mock Service Worker, uh, if you're not using Cypress. I make sure the server will respond, right? That there's a, a fake server, basically, will respond. And then eventually I should get another list of products if I have stubbed out the environment. That's generally the kind of test I write. So I'm not thinking about how the code is written. You can actually, you can barely tell the difference between a view component test and a React component test that I've written, which is another good way to think of it is like, it's a complete black box. Mm-hmm. View that as a very healthy sign. Yeah, implementation details are just the details, right? Like what you're testing yeah. is the functionality or the way that it looks and works. And if you write your tests against the innards, then you're writing brittle tests and you're going to rewrite those tests when you decide to swap out those implementation details. So that's very wise. Yeah, and when you're doing things that are computationally fun or exciting, like let's say testing a regex against something, like uh, form validation, it might make sense to pull that out into a JavaScripty file that's agnostic to the fact that it's going to be run inside of a component mm-hmm. and refactor your code such that you can easily unit test that code. And I would do that in a node-based runner, not in a browser-based runner, because node-based runners are faster. So I would be using Vtest, I would be using Jest or Mocha for that kind of a thing. Yeah, that's exactly the line we've been talking about a lot at my work is like, okay, what are the sets of things that make sense in a unit test environment? And it tends to be very logic driven, Mm -hmm. something like that, something that you can completely divorce from the visual that it's influencing from the DOM, exactly. And then end-to-end tests, as we're doing right now, which are essentially component tests, except we don't have quite the level of isolation you're describing, which has me like excited to go off and figure out how to set that up in our system. But are for stuff that you're that is rendering in the DOM, that is how the user perceives it, regardless of the details. At Cypress, we believe that most people's end-to-end tests will probably be covered by component tests with the infrastructure like 
we've provided. Very few things. Multi-page is the line for me between component and end-to-end. If you were to describe, ask me, like, should my test be a component test or an end-to-end test? I'll be like, I don't know. Does it go to multiple routes? That's the line for me. Uh. Or multiple systems, for example. Or are you trying to hit production? Like, there are different... End-to-end sometimes means I'm going to hit a staging environment that is, like, hosted on a CDN somewhere. You can host certain things on DNS. It's not performant. But I know that people have shoved a lot of stuff into DNS, even though I know that was just a completely a misspeak on your part. But yeah, so it's like, if you're hitting multiple routes, if you're going to visit multiple pages, that's the line for me. Or if you're trying to test the integration between multiple systems, and the way you're doing that is through the front door of the application. Mm-hmm. I like to call like you know the website the front door. Ooh, do you have other house metaphors? Other house metaphors? If that's the front door. You know. Oh, there's a back door. Yeah. Backdoor would be like the API itself. I thought the backdoor was that password that you left in there that you didn't tell anybody about so that you could always get in later. Right. <laughs> Every good system administrator leaves themselves a backdoor. Like, oh, you just have to type test one, two, three, four, and you'll get right in. There was, um, on occasion, I have shared passwords for like educational resources and stuff like that, like if I'm trying to help somebody out. And my shared password is always my now defunct like, this is the reason I can say this. My last company um, was in travel ads, and they shut down immediately when the pandemic hit, despite being profitable for so many years. But travel ads was not really a, a good market in 2020. We have an alum Slack group now. Um, everybody knows the password. I don't know. I find that to be a nice little, when I made a Neopets account, let's say, that was like the company Neopets account, I went ahead and everybody had the shared password. There you go. There's your back door right there. It's actually where I learned HTML. The Neopets programming guide. Oh, wow. You guys too old for Neopets? No. Probably not. I might be too not cool for Neopets. (laughs) (laughs) When did Neopets happen? 99. It was like uh, 2000, 2001. It was all Flash games. Kids like me. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. They give software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I am here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, from what I understand, Raygun is founded by nerds. So you at least accept the term nerds. Is that a good name to describe you and the rest of the team who created Raygun? Oh, absolutely. Even the folks that don't write software, they're nerds in their own own categories, right? They're passionate about it. They love everything about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm a mixture of a business and software nerd. Yeah. Like those two domains, love them to bits. Well, that's that intersection too that makes interesting what you've done at Raygun. So why did you even create the business? Like how did you decide to make this your thing? So I started coding when I was about nine years old and got my first proper job in 2004 after university. And my business partner today and I, we used to deliver software, which frankly um, was pretty high quality. And we looked back at what did we do to achieve that? And one of the things we did was we would always email every single error to ourselves. And that just meant that we could fix things before the customer could even contact us. And so we were like constantly impressing people with the quality of what we were shipping. Fast forward a few years later, we built the business and we decided to build a product around that whole workflow that was a lot better than just juggling your inbox. And it turns out that's a model that a lot of developers and a lot of businesses have found very, very effective for increasing their their software quality without letting down the users. 
Very cool. All right, head to raygun.com to learn more and start your free 14-day trial. No credit card is required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, raygun.com. My favorite thing about the Neopets HTML guide was the audio segment. It's like you could do so many annoying things and cursors, custom cursors and audio is like, those are the tags that I miss the most is like, you would have a shop in the shop and you could make your own little shopkeeper and theme it with backgrounds and stuff. I very much miss the ability to put obnoxious things on the web. I mean, I feel like you can still put obnoxious things on the web. You just yeah. need to host them somewhere. Have you ever been to the most annoying website.com? Oh gosh. It's don't do it now. Don't do it. Okay, okay. That's the one where like you can't close anything or like yeah, yeah, yeah. do a simple task. Like you you're supposed to like fill out a form and it becomes impossible. Yeah, Faraz built that. He's one of our panelists and he uh, he basically uses every annoying feature of the browser that you could possibly use and just like recursive loops things it's art it is art i feel like he he did it at least partially to advocate for closing some loopholes (laughs) (laughs) that's very smart one of the things you have to be good at when you're building test runners that are like mainly browser-based is exploits of the web and in particular iframes you have to really know your stuff with with iframes and before working at Cypress, I worked that, at that ad tech company, and I've done some very bad things on the web to make pop-ups happen. Some very morally questionable things. Ooh. And here I liked you for so long. <laughs> I mean, I don't work there anymore, and the company's gone, so. Okay. So all's well that ends well, I guess. But yeah. what are some of the iframe, you got I gotchas, or do you have uh, currently, you got any zero days you want to... <laughs> Share. <laughs> <laughs> you want to you want to release no there was one guy like bless him for fighting back because i was i was such a junior developer i had no morals did not have a seat at the table at the time in my career and it was a it was a very important time but um the worst thing i did and there's this chrome guy that kept patching all of it so like i'm we're good like none of this is zero day but we did a um a pop under technique which is like when you close your window the bra it's behind uh, we did a pop under technique that utilized alerts in PDFs. So you would click on the browser, it would attempt to open a PDF mm. and refocus using alert. It was a terrible thing, but um, some very nice guy on the Chromium team was patching all of it. So <laughs> kept me employed. And then also, I don't feel that bad about it. The old cat and mouse game. It's an arms race. Yeah. That's exactly how we would describe it. And we had our own competitors that were eventually acquired by companies like Travago that were doing very similar techniques. And it was like, who could find the pop under technique faster? Us or the competitors. It was very toxic. Wow. Not good for the web in overall. Yeah. This is what they talk about when they say the smartest minds of our generation working on uh, ad tech. Ad technology. Right. Nowadays, it's working on pyramid schemes. So, you know. <laughs> ah. Is that a Web3 burn? sounds like a web three burn it's web five now so i don't know where you guys have been i think it's like web 1.5 it's at least down 50 percent <laughs> well played cave all well played well just happy to hear you're no longer trying to do pop unders but you are trying to make the web better now by helping people do these awesome component tests when you say component driven development can you mm. 
paint a picture of that. I know you yeah. you touched on it, but I'd love to have you return to that and and explain maybe like what that process looks like step by step to somebody who says like how can my components drive my development? Yeah. So instead of running, let's say like. I'm going to use Vite. Instead of running like Vite serve and going to your index HTML page that like contains your website, you know, the homepage, instead of starting your web development by looking at your application, you start your web development by mounting a component by itself in isolation in an environment such as Cypress, Storybook, Histoire, some of these story driven components. And you will write, if you're using Cypress, a test that does nothing but mount your component. And you're driving your web development with your mocks on the left side and your little sandbox environment on the right side. And so it's almost like test-driven development, right? You're not using your application. Right. You're not, you know, your application isn't on the left side. It's your little sandbox. And this leads to a very pure development experience because it's a pain to, you don't have all of your application at your disposal. And so you have less rope to hang yourself with is a good way of thinking of it. So instead of having this very domain coupled environment, like your application probably hydrates itself with some network requests. And so if you're building in your application, you may pull from those network requests on window or if you have some sort of local storage that always has the data available for you, you might be pulling from that. And so you wind up with a very coupled component if you were to only develop in the website in your eventual web application versus if you're developing in your sandbox, you're providing all of the data via props or a component hierarchy if you're using a lot of providers, for example. It just leads to a better API design and a better component, more pure, right? You're giving it all of the information it needs versus it being very easy to just break outside of your sandbox and grab things from wherever you need them. I've definitely noticed when working in an environment with Storybook or something like it, the design of components just shifts and you people get much more rigorous about thinking about data flow and not just pulling in API calls everywhere. You know, it's it becomes much much cleaner. And it becomes testable, right? Because you know the ins and outs of the component and you don't need to fixture an entire application to get your component into the state that it was it expected to be in when you built it, right? You mentioned histoire. And I just stop on that word and I just think, histoire. What, what is this? Help us understand. Yeah, histoire. It's the French word for story. And it was built by one of the Vue core team members, Guillaume, or Acrium is his... Uh, is his name on GitHub and on Twitter. Basically, we wanted to make a Vite-based storybook alternative that embraced single file components and gave a very natural DSL for building out stories. So instead of having the normal storybook API that you might be used to, it allows you to define multiple variants and stories by using components inside of your single file so instead of in view, for example, in view, you have like, let's say three different sections. You have a template, which defines markup. You have a script, which defines business logic and runtime code, and you have a style block. And you would also now have the ability to have a, a story tag, for example. And so Histoire uh, was very friendly towards view users, it was written by a view core team member, and Svelte users, for example. So the DSL, I think, will be very natural for those kinds of users. 
that don't use JSX all the time. So you mentioned focusing on single file components. So then is it primarily aimed at, I guess those are the two frameworks I'm aware of that have that compilation step with single file components. So probably not supporting React or does anyone use Angular anymore? Oh, oh. the Angular community uses Angular. They do. They do. In fact, we had somebody write in and say, hey, you guys are you're hating on Angular too much. You need to give it some love. So K-Ball, come on, man. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I think the, actually the backstory there is my impression anyway is that Angular is much more used in large enterprises. And yeah. I have never worked in such a place. So I, I never run into that. And that's very much not in my mindset. Fair. But I think very large numbers of people do work in those locations. And they may well be doing lots of very cool stuff with Angular. And I just don't end up running into them. Yeah. JavaScript is such an interesting world because we fragment, like we're already a section of tech, but we also then sub-fragment down into like these framework lines. And then Node even, right, is over here being like... right. Ah, I remember, so JavaScript was not my first language. I came into JavaScript and I was like, so where are the official docs? Uh. <laughs> and somebody just like laughed at me. My tech lead just like laughed. And I was like, what do you mean there's no official docs? I like, I came from Objective-C where like the official docs literally are on your computer, like offline. Yeah. Objective-C is the predecessor to Swift. So if you're writing anything Coco OS X land, that's, you know, for the audience. That's my, that was my first language ever. I was a manual QA for iOS apps. So I was very shook when I realized that JavaScript had no official. Ha ha. I mean, pros and cons of not being owned by a single company to some extent. Yeah. But aren't we all owned by Google? Like, let's be <laughs> Chrome owns our soul. These days, that seems more and more true, but... You know, everything is peaks and valleys. And so like we're peaking there and then there's going to be a rebellion and we'll move in a different direction. And it just takes the, you know, there's these processes. When you're around long enough, you see things move across. And yes, I think it's true today, but I think it's going to be less true 10 years from now. That's just my own prognostication. Now, speaking to this, this is an interesting point about the fragmentation inside the JavaScript community, quote unquote. Because we have another show called Go Time, which is like for the gophers. And JS Party and Go Time are very much in the same image, but they're in different communities. And I'm involved in both of the shows. And so one of the things that I think we've struggled with, JS Party, and we would love to crack this nut, is we wanted to create a show for like everybody who has anything to do with like JavaScript and the web. And that's proven to be difficult. They're, on the Go Time side, like the Go Time gophers, they have more of like this milieu, this uh, maybe just more tight knit. Like they have a more of a common community or ethos. Whereas in the JavaScript world, there's so many little quote unquote camps or just areas of interest. And you have like, you know, people think that we don't talk about CSS. Well, we could definitely talk about it more, but we do, but it's not in our name. But yet we want to create a place where everybody can hang out together. And that's proven to be difficult, I think, because of what you're talking about there, Jess, where there's just kind of like, first of all, there's a lot, I mean, darn near everybody who does web yeah. has some sort of angle into JavaScript and like they're completely different people in different situations. K-Ball doesn't think anybody uses Angular. People at large corporation X don't think nobody uses Vue or something, right? So there's, it's weird. It's super weird. The fragmentation is, is giant. And like, then you add TypeScript. Right. And you're like, oh, no, we're, we're ECMAScript party now. Right. <laughs> well, Nick Nisi's been working very hard to change us into a TS party, but we, we rebel. But it is, it is like there's so much fragmentation. And 
it's not even like web party, right? Because Node. Right. You run into developers like one of the one of my coworkers. I've been very lucky at Cypress to to work with some rock stars. Right, Tim Greiser is the creator of Connects and Nexus, and he is Node Party all the way. And Node and TypeScript are his like passions. Mm-hmm. Not interested in CSS. There are so many different ways you can specialize in JavaScript in the web ecosystem. Yeah, sorry, web ecosystem. Yeah, in the Node or, or web ecosystem. And right. the divide isn't on the language, right? It's where you spend the most time solving problems. It's like, do you care about making things pretty? Then you're probably going to go deeper into CSS. Yeah, there's so many different ways to specialize, and it's hard. And you may feel like you're not welcome at a JS party, but you're totally welcome here. <laughs> That's some of the, I guess, the hurdles that we have to overcome. And we could do better, of course, in diversifying what we talk about, of course, we have our own, you know, we have a rotating panel. So we have our people who have different views into the world. And like yeah. Chris Hiller, for example, is very much more on the node back inside of the world. And yet it's hard. It's hard to create what we feel like is like a, a community, a JavaScript and web community. Because I can't even say like and web, like node and robo. ECMAScript community. There you go. Yeah, ECMA. That's a cute term. There's no ring to it. Uh, you know, ES party? I don't know. I mean, I think... That is the challenge, right? Is like, if you're doing Go, there's a few different things you might be doing, but you're probably working in a server environment somewhere. You're probably doing something where performance and sort of multi-processing or, or multi-scalability, you know, scalability, multi-thread scalability is important, right? Like the range of problems that Go is typically used for is much smaller. Mm-hmm. Whereas JavaScript is just used for Everything, essentially. Yeah, it's so general purpose. There's people doing ML in JS. Yeah. It's not as common as doing you know, web development or, or something else, but it's everywhere. And so it creates this like big, fractious environment. It's like the United States. The United States has people from everywhere, and we can't get along because we all have such very different backgrounds and priorities and, and other things, whereas right. a smaller country with less diverse population often seems more cohesive even though you know they may may not be accepting of outsiders but because there aren't that many it works fine right good analogy what i got was javascript is like the united states 50 <laughs> percent aiming their guns at the other 50 <laughs> percent that's fine i'm gonna use that heading towards societal breakdown no uh, this is not a good week to talk about parallels to the United States. Well, there's no uh, saving this conversation from there. We could wrap it or we could try to switch co- switch topics. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Jess? Switch topics? Yeah. All right. I've reached the end of mine. Do you have anything that we haven't talked about? Anything else that's exciting you or you haven't mentioned? You're like, man, I wish we would have talked about this project or that thing. Or we're back to Neopets. What do you want to talk about as we close out the show? I guess I would like to close out the show by talking and just being very excited about the conferences that have seemed to start back up. Mm. You know, my last month, June was conference season for me. I got to go to uh, View Amsterdam and ViewConf US. And nice. this month for me was really invigorating because I got to meet all of the people I, I met online. And so it seems to be continuing. Like I know um, View Japan's going to be remote. ViewConf is also going to be remote. It's the first ever ViewConf. Very excited. But the other conferences I have, View Toronto is um, and Svelte Summit. They're both in person, so I'm going to be in Stockholm next month. No, 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 two months, September 8th and 9th. I'm going to be in Stockholm. 
I'm pretty pumped to meet everybody in person. I got to hang out with Debbie O'Brien. She just joined Playwright, and so we were talking testing, and I was like talking theory with her, and that was really cool, getting to share those in-person moments. That is exciting. K-Ball, are you getting back out? I am gradually working on my both immediate and extended family to expand our how safe we feel with traveling. I did my first plane trip since the pandemic last month to a small event. I unfortunately canceled going to a large conference this month because we just did not feel safe yet. Um, I mean, it's, it's complicated, and I'm glad there are both conferences starting up in, in person and some that are still remote because you know there are people with all sorts of different levels of risk tolerance, immune compromise, other different things, and there is still a heck of a lot of disease out there right now. Um, but reading the tea leaves and navigating a family situation, I don't think it's going to happen for me this year, but I'm very hopeful for next year. I'm happy you said that, actually, because we're also considering reining back in after, you know, paying attention to, like, I, I probably got the Omicron BA2 strand in late April. And so June, I was very much within my immunity window. Um, you know, call your doctor. That's what I did. And I was very happy to be able to be, to go out safely after getting the antiviral as well. My COVID experience, I was very lucky to be very lucky. I have epilepsy. I'm very loud about this. And my doctors were like, you absolutely need the antiviral. And so I was able to get it. And so while my immunity is is waning, we're reevaluating again. And I oftentimes feel pressured by, by people to go out there. And I'm happy you said that cable like that makes me feel a little bit better about making decisions for myself. I would also say that remote workshops and stuff, I think I would like to do more of a hybrid approach next workshop I do. I think the next one I have scheduled is via Toronto in November. Who knows what it'll be like. I did in-person uh, ViewConf US, and while I liked the in-person connections, I was able to reuse my remote format. I didn't have to change a thing, and I think it made for a better workshop overall. It was like a collaborative Miro board with all these different post-its, and everybody got to just pile on. And I really liked what the remote-first approach the workshop took. Like I liked the end result once I moved in person, and I think it could be hybrid. So I might, I might ask the organizers if I can do a hybrid, make it more accessible to people. No harm in asking, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jess, thanks so much for joining us, having this awesome conversation. What's the best way folks can hook up with you on the remotes, on the interwebs? Is it Twitter? Is it your website? Help people reach you. It's Twitter. My website says, do not email me. Go to Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll have the links to Jessica's Twitter account as well as her website and not her email, but everything else will be in your show notes as well as all of the things discussed on this particular episode. So check the notes for links to Histoire, to some stuff with Maroc, to the JS Party 210, to component-driven user interfaces, all the things. Spelt Summit as well. Put the Neopets HTML guide there too. Yeah, hook us up with the link to that guide. There it is, it's coming into the chat. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. On behalf of K-Ball, I'm Jared, and this has been JS Party. Thanks again, Jess. You're welcome back anytime. That's our show for this week. We'll talk to y'all next time. If you enjoyed Jess's thoughts around component testing, go back and listen to episode number 148, 
when Amel, Chris, and I were joined by Gleb Bakhmatov, who also worked at Cyprus at the time. Gleb is a fountain of wisdom. Here's an appetizer from that episode. Testing is just like one solution to a problem, and the problem is quality software, mm. right? Like people don't come to you and say, hey, can you test this? No, people come to you because they say, my application is not working, or I suspect it's not working as good as it could be. It doesn't work for some users. What can we do? And then you start kind of thinking about it, and testing is part of an answer. But this is a huge, huge pet peeve of mine. People think like, oh, we, you're writing NPM package or some code. No, 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 I'm trying to solve a problem. And writing code is part of a solution. And usually it's not even the most important part. Continue listening in your JS Party feed. The episode is called Thank You, Dr. Bakhmatov, or on the web at jsparty.fm slash 148. Long-time listeners, do us a solid and share JS Party with your friends. In fact, I'll cut you a deal. Email a personal recommendation to three of your friends, bccjsparty at changelog.com, and I'll send you a free pack of Changelog stickers. With win-win-win, we all win. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for these banging beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, we're hitting you with Dino's fresh new web framework. Luca Castanato joins Faraz and myself for all the deets. That episode will drop into the podcast feed next week. Everybody, if you got what it takes, cause I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that these are the breaks. Let's break right here, natural break. We can pick up, uh, actually, we can, I, I want to pick up on the Neopats on the other side. I don't know. Mm. At that time, I was playing text based MUDs rather than HTML based stuff. So, mm. MUDs are something dungeon? Yeah, multi user dungeon. Yeah. It, it was basically the text based predecessors to MMORPGs. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. 1999, is that, is that the time frame? Yeah. Yeah, Neopets is 99, I think. I was playing Goldeneye on Nintendo 64, just obsessed, obsessively. I was very bad at, at FPSs until I played Battlefield 4. So I got, it took me a long time to like really get into FPSs. Mm. I've fallen out of FPSs, but I was into them then. But now they're just like... They're online. Everybody, like eight-year-olds, will just smoke you and then like do that thing where they like hump on your face, and you're just like, "Why am I? Why am I playing this?" <laughs> the only time I ever played FPSs was in college. We had like my freshman year of college. I was in a dorm with like eight Doom dudes, and they were really into Counter Strike. Okay, oh, Counter Strike, yeah, CSGO, yeah. And so like I had a year in my life where we did, I did a lot of Counter-Strike and basically never since. I had some Counter-Strike in college as well. The Cypress founder actually went semi-pro and won a few tournaments. Wow. Yeah. I was like, huh, Counter-Strike. Who would have thought? <sighs> All right. Let's, uh, 
let's do our third segment here. So I'm going to actually pick up where we left off with Neopets for a minute, because why not, right? Okay. Okay. 